0: John chapter 2, open up your Bibles to that. We're going to look at the first miracle. You say, oh, John 2, yep, I've heard that a lot of times. How many sermons have I heard on this? How many Bible studies? How many times have I read it? But you see, that's one of the geniuses of God's Word, is that you just don't hear it one time. You hear it a second time, third time, fifth time, tenth time, twentieth time. And the Spirit takes that and keeps building it into our minds, into our hearts, and we learn something new all the time. So I, I'm confident tonight you're going to have a little new insight into this passage of Scripture which is so familiar to you. In John chapter 1, he has taken his readers from the Jordan Valley where John the Baptist was ministering. And at that point, not only the baptism, but Andrew and Simon Peter were called by Jesus. And then he takes us, John takes us up to Galilee, up to the north, And at that point, we find that Philip and Nathaniel are brought into the discipleship. And probably somewhere along the line, also we have John and probably James. In chapter 2, we are at Cana of Galilee. That's about seven or eight miles northeast of Nazareth where Jesus grew up and where he will perform his first miracle. Let me read the first 11 verses to you, and then we'll look at them. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now nah, dry some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now it become wine and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and my people who have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. chapter begins with a rather ordinary statement about a wedding. And this is somewhat remarkable in view of what is found in chapter 1. There are lots of exalted truths there in chapter 1. You know the first three verses. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was with God. Verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Uh, verse 26 of the first chapter. Uh, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one you do not know, as he points to Jesus. Verse 36, behold the Lamb of God, and so forth. There's several things like that in this first chapter, and suddenly begin chapter 2, and John takes us down to a normal wedding. But isn't that the way the Bible is? You have divine revelations carried right down to human experience. Right down to where people like us are, even as we are here tonight. Probably this was not held at a palatial estate, something like the Great Gatsby setting, uh, with servants uh, walking around, all dressed in their finery, carrying around beverages and whatever. Probably this was the home of a very poor uh, person, pr- a poor place, humble people. It's in Cana of Galilee. And notice how John specifies where it is, not only the area, but the specific village where it's at. He takes us right down into space-time. He's not up in la-la land. He's in our historical setting. And who do we find there? The mother of Jesus. So that captures our attention. This is not any ordinary wedding. The mother of Jesus actually is there. Undoubtedly, she was a relation or a friend of the families. And John's style here is is accurate in that throughout the book, he doesn't always mention names. He never mentions his own name, simply the disciple who loved Jesus. And here he doesn't mention Mary by name. He just says the mother of Jesus. So there's consistency in this Gospel of John. So Mary was there. And see who else was there. Verse 2. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Well, now we're really interested in this wedding. Not only was Mary there, Jesus and his disciples were there as well. It should be noted that Jesus not only had been invited, but he accepted the wedding invitation to attend and made the effort to come. Jesus was no recluse. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he appears as a very popular dinner guest who mingled with people. He was not aloof and off by himself all the time. His goal was not to rob people of joy and gladness and have a good time, um, but rather to bring genuine life to their dreary existence. Jesus said in John 10, I am come that they might have life. They might have it more abundantly, as he spoke of his sheep. He doesn't want us to be sad morose all the time. So here we are at a wedding. Yet the following verses are not going to focus on the bride, on the groom, on the parents, on the other guests. But upon an interesting interchange between Jesus and his mother and the servants who are there in the home. Let me say something about Jewish weddings in that time. Often, they lasted a whole week. Now, I'm not really thrilled about going to weddings, but I figure I can put up with, you know, maybe up to 45 minutes for a wedding. If it gets past 45 minutes, I get a little little antsy. But a whole week for a wedding? Oh, wow, I'd have a hard time with that. My wife probably would love it. Um, so this meant that new guests were constantly coming and, and going all the time. Food and beverages were supplied uh, and they had to be maintained, especially the wine. Now, there's going to be reference to wine. There is reference to wine in this passage. Was it fermented wine or something like grape juice? Well, that's not the point of the story here, and so I'm not going to get into that. So when I use the wine, wine, if you think it's fermented, take it that way. If you think it's grape juice, take it that way. All right. But it was the beverage, very common of the day. Now, no wedding is exempt from Murphy's Law. If I understand Murphy's Law correctly, it's if anything can go wrong, it will. Groomsmen faint. Bridesmaids trip on their dresses. Ring bearers start crying. And cakes fall. Those kinds of things. And here in Cana of Galilee, a major problem had developed, probably at the end, toward the end of that week, No wine. Now in our day, if that was announced to the guests, we're sorry, we've run out of wine, we apologize, the guests would say, well, we understand There's been a lot of people, a lot of things going on, thank you very much. They get in their cars, and on the way home, they stop at McDonald's and get a malt or a coffee or something, and they'd be happy, they'd be perfectly satisfied. But back in the days of Jesus, this had the potential of becoming a great social disgrace for the hosts. It was an error never to be forgotten and it would haunt the host for the rest of their days that they ran out of wine at this wedding. I understand that even legal action could be taken against the host in such a circumstance. Wow. So at the end of verse 3, the mother of Jesus comes to Jesus and says they have no wine. Now remember at this point in time, Jesus has not performed any miracle. So I don't think Mary's coming to Jesus saying, can you perform a miracle? Well, I think she's turning to him for some kind of assistance and some kind of, of help. Now she was aware that he was the Messiah. After all, he had been conceived and born and carried in her womb, and she brought him forth. We also know in Luke chapter 2, verse 51, that his mother treasured up all these things in her heart, so she's been thinking for several years, 30 years or so, about all that's been happening, and she knows that something big's going to happen here with her son, so she's just not sure when that is going to happen. Was she expecting and looking for a miracle then? Probably not. But knowing his character, she had to believe that somehow he could be of help, even if only to say something kind of wise, to kind of temper the situation, relieve the embarrassment. So I think she's coming to him and saying, please, son, can you help us? There's a problem. They've run out of wine. Now, as we have seen, it was a critical moment then for the wedding hosts. But it was also a very critical moment for Jesus himself. Why? Because for the first 30 years of his life, he had lived in relative obscurity. He worked as a carpenter's apprentice with Joseph, undoubtedly, during that time. We know virtually nothing about his life, those 30 years up in Nazareth. If he were now to call attention to himself in a public way, I emphasize the word public, in a public way, then his whole life would be altered. A virtual clock would begin ticking. And that clock would not stop until it got all the way to the cross. Was this the time to do it? During that time of the ticking clock, he would become very well known. The gazing stalk of all eyes and the talk of every tongue. So he has to be very careful how he's going to reply to Mary's request. How does he do that? So we come to verse 4. My, we wow. Jesus said to her. First of all, he says, "Woman." Wow, kind of a strange way to talk to your mother. Now you could take it this way. She comes, at, son. Can you help us? We have this problem. Mother. This is no, no. I don't think he's using the word woman that way. In Bible times, woman was a rather a a term of respect. Great affection. What about the next thing he says? What does this have to do with me? Seemingly very insolent, very disrespectful. What do you want me to do about it? Why do you bring this to me? What do you expect me to do? Well, we we can't take it that way. When you go to the Greek, it's interesting how the Greek reads, what to me... And you, woman, what to me and you? Why are you getting in this matter? Why are we getting in this matter? What do we have to do with this? Now you say, well, couldn't he have responded to something like this? Oh, boy, I should bring this now. Um, What would you like me to do? How can I help? But instead, he's saying, what, why are we getting involved in this? Now, why did he speak that way? There were other times when Jesus spoke strangely about his mother. One of the more well-known ones is found in Matthew chapter 12, beginning at verse 46. <clears throat> Matthew twelve forty-six. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Uh, Jesus, your your mother's outside there. Your brothers, they have something they'd like to talk to you about. Here's Jesus' reply to the man who said that. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, those who heard him say that, they scratch their head and say, what kind of an answer is that? I couldn't treat my mother that way. What do you mean? Who's my mother? My mother, these people right here, these are my friends. And so if he's disassociating himself completely from Mary, well, I don't think he's doing that. But he is introducing a break between the relationship he had with his mother and with himself. That, that relationship is about to change. And a barrier of sorts is beginning to come up between them. A new relationship is being established because Jesus is preparing her to consider Him not as her son, but as her Savior. And it's the first step. He goes on to say, the end of verse 4, My hour has not yet come. Mother or woman, this is not the time for me to do something great outwardly. My time has not yet come. So he does say that. Seven times that phrase is used in the Gospel of John. So here at the start of his public ministry, he's aware of the final consummation of what he's called to do. But every detail of his coming work had been marked off in the Father's eternal decree that's true, right up to that future hour, but he's not going to be pushed prematurely into moving that along yet, in a major public way, even by his mother. And we're going to see how he performs the miracle that will fit in with that. Let's go to verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I, By putting this together, I tried to Picture Mary standing there, Jesus having said what he said. And then I, I picture her for a brief moment, nodding her head a little bit. And to her credit, she's an unexpressed surprise, her mouth doesn't drop open. I wasn't expecting that. He doesn't, she doesn't experience, uh, express resentment, exasperation at what Jesus said. She's satisfied in some way he is going to take appropriate action. So immediately she turns to her servants and says to them, do whatever he tells you. By the way, that indicates that Mary had to be of some importance in that wedding because the servants immediately do what what she asked them to do. So that's the setting of this first miracle that Jesus is about to perform. Let's go now to the solution that's provided by the miracle. Verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus does not want to go public with some big thing. At the same time, He does choose to do something. Here are these six large water jars. Now they weren't six of these. This is a little water cup, which reminds me, I need to take a drink. These are huge things. They held 20 to 30 gallons. There were six of them. Probably there was some water in there, but even if there was some water in there, that doesn't bother what Jesus is about to say. These, um, that would be approximately 120 to 180 gallons worth of these jars. They were used by the Jews for various ceremonial washings and purifications, as part of the religious observances of their religious life. Verse 7, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now the servants were willing to listen to what Jesus said. Mary had said, listen, to what he says. But going through their minds, they thought, what, what's he telling us to do? There's already enough water perhaps in there to take care of people. That could have been one possible response. Isn't wine we need, not water? How's water going to solve the problem? How unreasonable to ask us to do this. Why don't we just put a little more water in? Maybe that'll make them happy. But they don't do that, they might have gone through their mind. Why don't we just do what he says? He told us to do it, let's do it. And so, this is what they did. Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, verse 8, Now draw some out, and take it to the master of the feast. We don't know how much they took, how many carriers they had, but they took some of it to the master of the feast. Now, who was he? Well, he was the manager of the of the wedding, especially the food and beverage aspect of it. He also acted as kind of a master of ceremonies. Uh, and you can imagine by now all the complaints he was hearing from the guests. Hey, we're out of wine. We need more wine. Bring on the wine. And he had to say, we, we ran out. We we're trying to solve the problem here. If you can just please, please be patient. He's in a fix. Suddenly, here come these servants. They say, Jesus wants us to give this to you, and he wants you to take a taste of it. Where'd you get it? Well, he took out of of those stone jars of water. We don't need water. All right. So he drinks it. Tastes it. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. Then it says he did not know where it came from, though, of course, the servants knew who had drawn the water. So this was a surprise to him. Now, this idea of water being changed to wine has become somewhat proverbial. It's used often as a caricature of Christianity. Of Those Christians, they believe that Christ changed water into wine. There are jokes about it and uh, that sort of thing. Even in Christ's day, I understand, turning water into wine was a well-worn illusion done in the temple in Jerusalem, like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. The trick required a special apparatus prepared ahead of time and demanded a willingness for people to suspend belief for a few moments as this trick was performed for them. Look, we changed the water into wine, and it did that in some way. Well, nothing like that in these next couple of verses. Verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom. Thought maybe, maybe somehow he. He did it. I don't know how. He brought it about. Verse 10, he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. Now, what he's saying here is something like this. Apparently, you used the good wine first to kind of dull their senses and get them kind of inebriated. Then their taste bud changed. And then you could bring out the inferior wine, they wouldn't notice the difference. They're too out of it. Something like that. And so the master is sort of surprised here that there's this good wine has is, uh, come now. It's been kept sort of until the end, in his opinion. We've drunk all the other stuff, including the inferior stuff, and all of a sudden we have this good wine. Where did it come from? That's usually the first thing we serve. I think that's kind of what he's saying here. And as we look at this passage, somewhere between the filling of the water in the jars and taking the water, supposedly, out of it, that substance had changed to wine. Due to the remarkable creative power of the Son of God. Harry Rimmer says, Christ had laid aside the mechanisms of nature... Usurped the function of a grapevine, deleted the time element, and transmuted water into wine. All to say, or we can say it this way, in some way, how change had occurred. The interesting thing is that Jesus had made no big thing out of this. There's not even any evidence that he approached the jars, let alone pronounce any magic formula. He did not, after they put, the water filled up the jars. He did not say, All right, men, watch this. Something like that. Maybe say a few words, maybe even prayer to his Father in heaven. Now, take this to the Mass. We don't have any indication he did that. It just kind of happened. Didn't give any command for it to change. In fact, the servants seemed to be the only ones that did anything. They at least put the water there and took the water to the master of the feast. So the conclusion we must come to, I think, is this. Christ willed that it be done, and it was done. Leaving no doubt to its reality. Notice the restraint, the understatement of this miracle. Remember he said earlier that Jesus said to Mary, My hour is not yet come. Jesus was not about to perform some dramatic thing that would call public attention to himself, so that all the guests of the wedding would come running to him and said, "Did you do that? How did you do it?" It's kept very, very quiet. The purpose of it isn't even stated. Indeed, as Christ's miracles go, this was a rather strange one. I think we find all his miracles are somewhat strange one way or the other. Um, this one, there was no response to any expressed faith. Usually someone needs healing, something like that, and Jesus will say, go, your faith has made you well. But we, don't, we don't read that. Nobody made a public profession of faith, as it were. Um, how about the fact that uh, there was no disease involved? No storm to be stilled? Nothing like that. It was a social embarrassment that brought about Christ's first miracle. Interesting. So what's the significance of this miracle? John tells us in verse 11, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. The first of his signs. I mentioned in our very first uh, message on this, that there are different words used for the miracles: Signs, powers, miracles, uh, wonders. Sign was a favorite word of John. He uses it more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and he never uses dunamis, power. He never used that word. He likes the idea of sign, which indicates a miracle viewed as proof of Christ's divinity and majesty. It's a sign that he is the Son of God. It's a sign of his authority and his majesty. It leads away from the deed to the doer of the deed. So, by the way, the word first there rules out these so-called boyhood miracles of Jesus that I shared with you last time. And also it indicates that further miracles were to come. This is the first, John says, of the ones that he was going to do. Again, we have the reference to Cana in Galilee. And uh, Henry Alford said, Never was simple historical veracity more strikingly stamped on any miracle than on this. The fact that twice, John says, where it happened. There. Yeah. So that's one of the parts of the significance of the miracle. Secondly... It manifested His glory. Verse 11. first of these signs manifested His glory. Chapter 1, verse 14, I read for you a moment ago. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, outwardly, it didn't seem to do that. But the more people who understood what happened. This was the first step in a manifestation of his glory in a very remarkable way. Granted, it was veiled, but it it revealed something of his power, of his grace, of his truth, especially bestowing such a lavish gift at that time. He was fully man. Jesus, as a man, came to the wedding. He was there, but he was much more than a mere man, and he was the center of the account. As John gives us this, obviously he's at the center of this narrative of this narration. Um, the, the painter Rembrandt and others like him would put the object of their painting, the most important person or thing or object, very clearly in the painting, and there would be more dull colors in the background. He wanted people to focus on the person. Or the tree, or whatever it might be, that's what John has done here. He's painted this picture, this account, the wedding, the guests, and all that. Mary, <clears throat> but the one he wants us to see is the glory of Jesus. Who was the bride? I'm not told. Who was the groom? Who were the parents? I'm not told. What was she wearing? We're not told that. Standing among those shadows is the glory of the Son of God Himself. But the most significant thing about this miracle was not that it was the first that He did, not that it manifested His glory, although those are very important things, but what's the most significant thing? The very end of verse 11. And the disciples believed in Him. Not that they didn't have some faith to him before, otherwise they wouldn't have in the chapter one followed. Andrew and Simon Peter and Philip and Nathaniel and probably John and James. They had the initial faith in him, but you know, faith grow, has to grow, has to develop. And be, they were like little babies getting baby food. This was another important step in their belief adventure. Now their faith was more confirmed, more strengthened. That is with faith. Even our faith. You know, our faith kind of goes up and down, up and down. Sometimes we feel very strong that God is blessing, and sometimes, wow, we're down here. But overall, our faith should be increasing as the years go by in the Lord and what He means to us and what He can do for us. So for a brief moment in that little village, the important thing is that the disciples believed in Him. Mary hoped in Him. The servants witnessed what He did, but the disciples believed in Him. And John, who was writing this, probably remembered that incident and what it meant to him and his belief experience. The mysterious transforming power of this miracle is a picture, of course, of regeneration, of the new birth that we all experience the third chapter coming up, the account of Nicodemus. Jesus said, you must be born again to come into my kingdom. You mean I have to go into my mother's womb to do this? No, 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 no. You're thinking physically, materially. I'm talking about a spiritual birth. You have to be born from above, born of the Spirit. It's, in that sense, it's a miracle that only God can do. Second Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation or a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things have become new. The water is gone, the wine has come. The transformation has taken place in a way you can't explain. How do we explain how water was changed to wine? We can't. The Bible doesn't explain how it happens. How do you explain how a person becomes converted, becomes a new person? Well, the outward actions of the person, of course. But as far as the process itself, it comes from the supernatural work of God. The miracle that Jesus did perform uh, reminds us that He came to bring life and joy. I mentioned that earlier. To restore all things from the misery of sin's curse for the glory of God and the well-being of His people. So I close with this quotation from uh, A.W. Pink. There is only one who can furnish the true wine, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He can satisfy the longing of the soul. He can quench the thirst to the heart, of the heart. He can put a song into your mouth, which not even the angels can sing, even the song of redemption. And the disciples believed. Do you? I hope you do. Let's pray. Father, in this account, we've been reminded again of your compassion to people in their need. You meet needs. We are also reminded of the glory of the Son of God who became man and dwelt among us. We are reminded, too, of the new birth, which those of us who know you through Christ have experienced. Some of us who grew up in a Christian home is something we always were aware of. Others later in life have come to know you. This is your work, and we give you glory for it. And so may we be encouraged as we leave here this afternoon to know that you love and care for us and that your grace enables us to continue to trust you, to have faith in you, regardless of the paths you bring us down. We commit our lives to you and pray your blessing and benediction upon us. In Jesus' name, amen.